Hey, it's your editor here, Sanjo. Thanks for hanging around. I am so sorry that this episode has been delayed so much. So basically what happened was we had to delay the recording by a day, which isn't anyone's fault. It's just a series of unfortunate events, as you will hear in our review, isn't the easiest show to binge. So we had to delay the recording a little bit, and that kind of pushed the editing back a little bit and made it a little bit tighter, which is fine. Originally, this show was a little bit longer, this particular episode, but because uh, I've had a little bit more time, I've managed to slim it down a little bit more. But then when I went to upload it on Friday, it turns out the server that we were using wasn't actually live. I wasn't able to publish the episode, which is never good. So really what you could say is just um, the making of this episode was a series of unfortunate events, which works well to what we're reviewing. Anyway, that's the excuses out of the way. Hope you enjoy the episode. It is a fun one, packed full of content, and you can look forward to episode 10, which is a very fun one. You'll learn what that one is about at the end of the show. Very fun episode, and I'm hoping to get that out either Friday afternoon at this stage or Saturday morning. It's going to be pushed back just just a tiny bit, and then we'll get straight back into the normal schedule with episode 11. Anyway, that's enough for me. Time to get straight into the episode. It is a fun one. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you next time. To quote Lemony Snicket, fate is like a strange, unpopular restaurant filled with odd waiters who bring you things you never ask for and don't always like. Unlike here at Nerd Out, we uh, struggle to bring you things that you always like and are interested to find out about. Welcome to Nerd Out. I'm Rob Lloyd, and as always, joining me is my fantastic cohort in Nerd, Sandra Felcher. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Thanks for uh, sticking around for this episode. Yeah, thank you everyone for coming along. We've got, uh, as always, a packed schedule. We've got headlines, we've got things we've been consuming lately, and our major focus today is uh, the Netflix original series of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Season one is up online. And we've uh, made our way through all of the first eight episodes of that. And uh, we're going to give you a spoiler-free review. It's only been up a very short amount of time and hasn't uh, really been discovered by many people yet. So we're going to do it more as an advertisement for you to make a decision about whether you go see it as opposed to a full expose. Is that right, Sandro? That is correct, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not sure why, but it hasn't rated that well compared to uh, the major giants of Netflix, which is a real shame. So we're going to discuss that in great detail. Um, But first and foremost, let's get straight into it with nerd headlines. Oh, it's exciting. (laughs) It is First and the biggest bit of nerdy news that came out is um, just released yesterday, actually. Uh, Ryan Johnson, through the official, the director of Star Wars Episode Eight, uh, released on the official Star Wars Twitter account the uh, title for Star Wars Episode Eight and the first teaser poster. And the title is, yes, drum roll, please. The Last Jedi. Ooh, is it plural? Is it only one? So many questions. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, Jedi is the plural, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't say Jedi's. The Jedi relates to, you know, it's like multiples and ones. So that's the thing. For you know, a lot of people are going at face value, going, it's just one Jedi. Mm. So it's a very grim uh, title. 
and even the the font on the poster. Yes, we're going into font detail and the color of the font on the. This is how nerdy we are. Is is the red on black? So it is giving that you know the red of the Sith and the darkness of that type of you know implied tone. So what do you, what do you think of the title? Um, it's it's alright. Look, Star Wars titles have never been amazing. Uh, I'll just put it out there. For example, The Force Awakens. I love the movie. The title itself is a bit eh. Whereas The Last Jedi, I think, is probably a better title. But again, when it was announced, I was kind of like, okay, I don't really know what I was expecting. That's kind of it, and I'm fine with it. It's a good title. It's more what it implies, which I really like. Great. It's definitely up there with some of the best. I mean, I love I love Return of the Jedi as a title. I love the and I love the fact that we're talking about titles of Star Wars. Um, so I love Empire Strikes Back, you know. Um, but it's nowhere near as bad as well it's it's a great title. I love The Last Jedi, but the worst title of all, I think everyone agrees the last you know, the the worst Star Wars title and will be the last on anyone's popularity list is The Phantom Menace. Oh, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I think it's great. Like, it's very you know, ominous and it, it adds more fuel to the fire that this will be, you know, the middle chapter, which is always, you know, the darkest one within the, you know, the more popular Star Wars films. If you look at uh, the prequels, they just get, they got darker and darker and darker as they went along. So this one, you will show the dip, the struggle that all the characters need to go through so then we can get to episode you know, nine with its triumphant uh, positivity. It is really cool, though, because now we know what the title is. We, are, aren't, we, we aren't too far away from the first teaser trailer. I think that we are going to need to be getting a teaser trailer, uh, I think, around March, February. That's the thing, because we got, like, a trailer for The Force Awakens a yeah, year before the film came out, but now, um, because we've got this whole, you know, saga movie and in between every two years and then in between we've got the the star wars stories spin-off films coming they don't really want to interfere with the publicity for the other films so when you know it's almost unheard of to get a, a star wars film teaser trailer um you know in the same year that it's coming out it's quite unique didn't want to have anything uh affects uh rogue one at all and it, and it's great like they didn't even put a teaser trailer at the start of rogue one they went nup they focused all their marketing last year on nothing but rogue one and it and it worked because that's you know they didn't bleed it into one another they almost had that confidence so went you know we could just wait until you know 2017 to start advertising because we've got a star wars film out it doesn't need any help from the main saga and it's really really exciting it really is yes one final point I have on this title is, I just realised this, thanks to the power of the internet, if you do combine the titles of episodes 7 and 8, you get The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi. Possible sentence. Could episode 9 finish off that sentence? Is that too meta and cheesy for Star Wars? No, um, I, yeah, that actually works. The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and it's kind of kind of true. Oh, oh yeah, because it kind of is, because, you, you know, like, Ray was awoken? Is that the right term for what happened? Not really, but, you know. We'll go with it. Yeah, trust your gut, trust your instincts, we'll go with it. It, okay. it doesn't sound completely 100% right, but if we commit ourselves, it'll, you know, it'll all be fine in the end. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, uh, next bit of uh, nerdy news. Uh, Oscar nominations have been revealed, and uh, Sandro has been watching that like a hawk. Now, uh, do we have any surprises, any uh, big revelations, or is it all just uh, what we expected for the Oscars? Pretty much. Yeah, the nominations this year, 
pretty much what I was expecting. Uh, there are a couple of movies that weren't nominated, but I'll get into that later. Um, straight off the bat, for some reason, Suicide Squad was nominated for Best Hairstyle and Makeup. Again, it's technical awards, which doesn't really matter when it comes to the final night, but still, that now means that Suicide Squad is an Oscar-nominated movie, and they can put that on the box, which is not a good thing. Um, Passengers was also nominated for Best Original Score, and the music was quite good, and Best Visual Design, and the visual design was quite good as well. So I uh, I think Passengers definitely deserves those nominations. Moving on to the main reason, all the, the actors. So for Best Supporting Actor, we have uh, someone who I'm, who I'm actually a really big fan of, Mahershala Ali for Moonlight, a very good movie, which I'm actually off to see tonight. Very excited to see it. Heard really good things. He's uh, Remy in House of Cards, and he was Cotton Mouth in Luke Cage. So it's good to see him nominated for supporting actor for his role in Moonlight. Uh, we also had Jeff Bridges from the brilliant Hell or High Water. Lucas Hedges was nominated for Manchester by the Sea. Dev Patel for Lion and Michael Shannon for Nocturnal Animals. For Best Supporting Actress, we have Viola Davis for Fences, Naomi Harris for Moonlight, Nicole Kidman from Lion, Octavia Spencer for Hidden Figures, and Michelle Williams for Manchester by the Sea. For Best Actor, we have Casey Affleck. That's right, Casey Affleck has been nominated for an Oscar for his role in the incredibly depressing Manchester by the Sea. Don't watch that before you are about to go to sleep. It is not something you want to uh, you want to think about before, before <laughs> bedtime. I made that mistake a couple nights ago. Don't, just don't. Andrew Garfield was nominated for his role in Hacksaw Ridge, which is really cool. I actually thought he'd be nominated for his role in Silence, the Martin Scorsese movie, but he wasn't. Uh, He was nominated for Hacksaw Ridge. Ryan Gosling, of course, La La Land, he's nominated. Viggo Mortensen from the incredibly underrated Captain Fantastic. And finally, Denzel Washington for Fences. Uh, for Best Actress, we have Isabel Huppert from Elle. Directed by um, uh, Paul Verhoeven, the great Paul Verhoeven, who did Robocop and Starship Troopers and stuff. He sort of, like gave up on Hollywood and went back and made movies in his uh, uh, home country. He's done some incredible films, and he, like, he likes to blur the lines of stuff, and it, Isabella Huppert has been is said to be outstanding in that film. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard of it until uh, I checked it out last night, so uh, it's one I'm really interested in seeing. Same as the next one for Best Actress, Ruth Negger was nominated for her role in Loving, another movie which I hadn't heard of until last night. So those were the only two from the entire night that I hadn't heard of and ones I'm definitely interested in checking out. Of course, Emma Stone was nominated for La La Land. Natalie Portman was a bit of a surprise there. She was nominated for her role in Jackie. And finally, Meryl Streep was nominated for the 20th time for her role in Florence Foster Jenkins. So uh, <laughs> she can add yet another nomination. I get it. There is no her. way that Meryl Streep will win this one. So, yeah, it, it, it's actually quite depressing that she's been nominated for, for that film. Um, and there's so many, <laughs> really so many other great performances out there. And she's incredible. We love Meryl, but, you know, it's time to, you know, pass it out. There are so many outstanding actresses out there, whether they're young or, you know, mature aged actresses as well that should be giving the time and focus, especially for a film that 
was not a commercial success and not really a critically successful film either. It's mm. uh, it seems to be just a case of whenever Meryl makes a movie now she gets nominated. If, I, I'm sure that even even Meryl's going stop, just stop it. <laughs> yeah. Moving on then, best director we have Dennis Villeneuve for his work on Arrival. Mel Gibson, he was nominated for Hacksaw Ridge, Damien Chazelle for La La Land, Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea, and Barry Jenkins for Moonlight. And the one everyone's always waiting for, the best picture, all the nominees pretty much we all saw it coming. You got Arrival, you got Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, La La Land, Lion, Manchester by the Sea, and the one that I'm got my money on winning, Moonlight. So there we go. Those are all the nominations that we had for the Oscars last night. Yeah, no real surprises, but it's good to see some of those films getting credit where it was definitely due, because, again, a lot of those films, not massive financial successes. A couple movies that I feel like should have got nominated, but they didn't, of course, Sing Straight. I really had my money on that one getting a Best Picture nomination. It didn't, same with... Uh, the Hunt for the Wilder People, although they nominated What We Do in the Shadows, which was by the same writer and director, I think, two years after that one came out, so maybe, maybe it'll get it for next year's Oscars, Uh, as well as Hail Caesar, which didn't get any nominations, which I was quite surprised by, that that was one that uh, I thought would pick up a few, but uh, yeah, there we go, those are the Oscar nominations. Moving on, though, uh, there was quite a surprise when it came to a Flash announcement, Rob. You got s- something on that? Something to do with the musical crossover with Supergirl? Yeah, there was, um, uh, there's been a lot of hype about... Um, it's always a hype when it comes to genre shows about whether they're going to do you know the token musical episode. And with the musical prestige of the cast, like both us, Grant and uh, Melissa, were both in Glee, so we know that they've got some pipes on them. So it was you know, a given. It was a no, you know, no-brainer that they would do an episode. And when they announced that the Music Meister would be the the villain, everyone wasn't surprised at all. Music Meister was a creation of uh, a couple of years ago for the cartoon Batman series, The Brave and the Bold, which was sort of like a a very camp celebration of the characters where Batman would team up with all the lesser known uh, superheroes and, you know, have very camp over the top adventures. It was a lot of fun. And they did one episode, you know, with this new creation called the music master, which was a 30 minute musical episode, which was great. And that Neil Patrick Harris, the great Neil Patrick Harris, um, played the music master and, you know, everyone just said it was, you know, one of the you know seminal moments in, you know, comic book uh, mainstream lore that, you know, Neil Patrick Harris was phenomenal as a music master. So when it was announced, everyone got very excited. Everyone would just say going, it's just the next inevitable stage. We heard the announcement that they're doing music master. The next stage is going to be Neil Patrick Harris will in the flesh play this character and boom, they've come out with it. And it's not Neil Patrick Harris. Mm-hmm. It's young actor, young actor Darren Chris, who is a very great singer. He's from Glee as well. He's he's got the pipes and he's got the ability. He's a you know it's he. There's still a Neil Patrick Harris shaped hole in this episode. You know, no matter how well he does, I'm still going to be going. Oh, I wish it was Neil Patrick Harris, and especially watching him within the last couple of weeks as uh, Count Olaf on series of Unfortunate Events. I've got a, I've got a taste for Neil now, and I want to see more Neil on my screen. 
more exciting, more exciting news that uh, we've all been wondering um, why Tim Miller pulled out of Deadpool uh, 2. He's going, what's he going to do next? What's he going to do next? Sandro, we have found out what Tim Miller is doing now that he has left the Deadpool franchise that he you know, resurrected and, and made so great. Yes, his second movie, because of course Deadpool was his directorial debut. This is his second ever movie. He is going to be jumping on board a franchise with James Cameron himself to reboot Terminator. You, you, you remember that franchise? We haven't gotten a film from them in, what, oh, it's, it's got to be a, a very long time now, like two years? Yeah, yeah, we haven't got a good <laughs> the Terminator franchise in a couple of decades, but yeah. Oh, we- yeah, he is now going to be doing Terminator, and this is a reboot, so the, they are going straight back to the beginning, it seems. The great thing about Tim Miller, and the reason why he worked really well in Deadpool, and why I'm not too scared for the future of the franchise, even though he's left, is because he worked really well with the budget. He knows how to handle that small budget, and he did it really well on Deadpool. And I'm really interested in seeing what he's going to do with Terminator, because if they are going to be going back to the roots, if James Cameron himself is getting on board, then that means it's probably going to go back to the classic The Terminator movie, which, as we all know, was quite minimalistic in terms of its action sequences to a certain extent. I mean, there was a lot of bullets and gore flying everywhere, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he handles that. We don't know whether or not it is going to be uh, R-rated, as they say in America, because, of course, one of the major problems with Genesis was that they tried to appeal to the younger demographic. So we we do still have to wait to see uh, the exact details about this upcoming reboot, but we can tell you Tim Miller is going to be directing it, which is um which is exciting. We shall see. I mean, you know, the Terminator films are not ones I race out to go see or even get that excited about, but you need to stay true to the essence of it. As soon as you try to kiddify it, you lose the heart of the movie. And that's like what happened with the uh, Robocop series when they tried to make it more kid-friendly and take out all the things that made that first Robocop film so great. It destroys it. Even when they you know, tried to make uh, Aliens vs. Predator a bit more mainstream into like, the less gore with that first um, Alien vs. Predator movie when you had a Predator teaming up with a human, you're going, this just doesn't work. So yeah, if you lose the essence of what we got into those films in the first place, you're never going to appeal to anyone, which uh, leads into a series of unfortunate events which we'll get to very shortly. But before we do, we've been, uh, we had a little bit of time in between episodes. So we've been uh, each consuming um, things that we quite enjoy. So what have you been consuming lately, Sandro? Yeah, well, following on from last week, I have been catching up with a couple of short seasons that came out near the end of 2016. And I caught up with the second season of Humans, a show that surprised me in 2015 for being really, really cool, really well-made first season. It is the British adaption of a great Swedish show called Real Humans, which I watched uh, when it first came out in 2012 on SBS. Really good show. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Humans is exactly the same as that show. It is set in a world in the very, very near future in which robots are pretty much cars. In fact, they cost the amount of a small car, and you you buy them, and they pretty much act as your butler. They clean up around the house, they take care of your kids, and they do 
all that stuff. And uh, this show pretty much sets around the same plot that every AI-themed show seems to have, and that is that a couple of the synths, as they are called, have become self-aware. 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 But they handled it in a really cool way. The the thing that I loved about season one was that it kind of felt like an indie movie at times. It was kind of small, tight. It had a really cool cast. I won't go through all of them because the cast is massive. But uh, there are some really cool ones in there, including Colin Morgan. Merlin's in this, which which is always good. And uh, and a bunch of others. Gemma Chang is pretty much the lead as uh, the synth Anita. So season two picks up right where season one left off. I won't say anything about the plot because it's all spoilers. But let's just say more synths are becoming aware each episode. And um, look, it's it's a weird season. I have to be honest. I didn't enjoy it as much as season one. Um, I'm not sure why, maybe it's because we were kind of spoiled last year with Westworld. It handled the characters well, again, the acting was solid, and a lot of people aren't talking about it. A lot of people were talking about Season 1, as soon as that came out, the conversation was massive, not so much with Season 2. That's pretty much all I've got to say about it. Again, there's not much, it's just it's just a fun show. I'd still recommend it, Season 1 is great, and uh, Season 2 ends on a note in which... It hasn't been renewed, and um, I would be fine if it didn't get renewed, because it's a kind of cool cliffhanger, yet also ending uh, for the final episode. But if they do get a third season, it'll definitely be the last. So, Humans Season 2, I'm going to give it a solid 5 out of 7 Samurai. It's still one of the better shows on TV, but a little bit disappointing, uh, I've got to be honest. Alright, okay, thanks for that, Sandro. Good stuff. And what have you been consuming lately, Mr. Lloyd? Um, well, I finally finished off uh, something that I began months ago. Uh, uh, Caitlin and I are huge uh, Harry Potter fans, and so we were caught up in the buzz and the excitement of when they released the rehearsal script for the uh, stage play, which opened on uh, Harry Potter's birthday last year, um, of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. So we bought that last year and we started reading it together. Um, We got a little bit annoyed and frustrated and confused, and so we put it down, and we hadn't picked it up for months. It was only about, like, a week ago we said we should probably get back to reading that. We got about... Uh, about a quarter of the way through and so we got back into it about uh about a week or two ago and we've powered through what a lot of people didn't realize it's not a novel it's not a new story it's not written by jk rowling it's a play so it's a script it has got you know stage direction and all this type of stuff so what it basically means is it is only about 40% of what the whole experience is is the whole point is to go see this show live on stage so it's an original play, and this is what the cast learned during rehearsals. And so this is the script that they had just before opening night. But the thing is, a play evolves and changes once it's up and moving. No performance is the same. And so this script is very raw, very uh, unrefined. There's a lot of clunky dialogue in there, and it's very hard to get a, a hold of. So Caitlin and I threw it aside and kind of, put it on the back burner, but we decided to power on through. And it's a big beast as well. It's not just one play, it's two plays. It's two full hmm. plays that tell this story. So it is a big extravaganza. It is a massive extravaganza. And as you read it, you see this is something that needs to be seen live. It's an incredible experience to go watch. And you, the more you read it, 
any stage direction where it goes, there's a wand that does a spell, any characters use polyjuice and change character. Anytime there's a, like, uh, uh, yeah, there's a wizard's duel where wands are fighting, all these type of sequences, when you read that, you're going, all I'm reading is, is words off the page. But if I was seeing that, that would be amazing. So it's kind of a little bit of a cheat. The first time you see the play, you know, should be the first experience of it. But because this is so popular, it's sold out two years in advance. You know, you can't get tickets to this, um, you know, for another, you know, two years. It seems more like fan fiction. Sherlock feels like fan fiction, especially in the last two seasons, and that's what this is. It is pure fan fiction. It takes elements of the characters and doesn't really understand them. You can see it's someone's opinion of these characters as opposed to JK, and it seems like a betrayal of some of the these lesser characters and their how it's portrayed in this book is hinges on the whole point of the story and it doesn't really ring true to who those the essence of those characters. It, it's it's pretty good, but it feels more like fan fiction. So I give it I give it you know, three and a half samurai out of seven samurai. It was, some of it was really good, but it wasn't strong enough. And then as a script, it you know you can see the potential, but it is something you need to see live. But let's move on and focus on our main you know our main topic of this episode, which is Lemony Snicket's a series of unfortunate events on Netflix. They've um uh, they've readapted it after the commercial and critical failure of the movie back in 2004 starring Jim Carrey, and they've tried again to give it a bash, you know, this time uh, as a TV series on Netflix. So um, have, you, have you had much um, in the way of experience with the Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate event books in the past, Sandro? Were you raised on those books when you were a, a wee Sandro nipper? I was indeed. I don't remember them very well, but I do remember reading them. And that was the weird thing about going into this show, because what they are doing is they are adapting four books a season. I like the first one, but uh, my favourite books are five onwards. So going into season one, I was like, oh, okay, these aren't my favourite. It's going to be interesting to see how they do it. Big fan, and I'd say they uh, they did it justice. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very they're a very particular style of writing. So it's a very dark series of books with very grim and dry sense of humour. So for those of you that don't know, uh, this, the series of unfortunate events focuses on the Baudelaire children, so Violet, Klaus, and Sunny, whose uh, parents are killed in a mysterious uh, fire when their house is burnt down, and. Um, they need to go and live with their, you know, uh, their nearest living relative, which is Count Olaf, who they've never met before, and who's a very evil, mean man, who's also a terrible actor. <laughs> and through the course, we find out that he uh, wants their large inheritance and does whatever he can to get them. Watching this first season, for the most part, was just getting through very familiar ground and the same story and how they change it slightly. This one follows the text very closely and in many ways expands on it as well because they're very short books and for each episode going 45 minutes there. So they're bringing elements in from later books and messing it all around. But the whole point is the Baudelaire's go from one horrible scene to the other and what the the hope that we get from these book series because they meet horrible, horrible human beings Children aren't listened to at all. Adults are stupid uh, or evil or not to be trusted. So all that we can hope for is the Baudelaire stick together. And so the first season deals with the first four books. 
you can't watch it all in one go, can you, oh, Sandro? No, I think this is the one time with a Netflix show from the past, I want to say three years, in which I haven't watched more than two episodes a night. I watched this one book at a time, and I really couldn't do more because, as you said, it is very repetitive. And I would even say more so than the books. I was very young when I read the books, so I don't quite remember them exactly. But uh, even, like, camera angles and stuff were just the same each episode, which I felt worked, but I can definitely see why some people would get turned off by that. Yeah, look, it's um, the, the production value is incredible. The way it's shot, the, the, the sets, the costumes are amazing. It's absolutely beautiful. It has this ultra-realistic real, feel. It's this weird fairy tale world that, you know, there are cars and televisions but it's all almost in a steampunky type of type of way. They make references to modern music, so we have Tia Puente and uh, Dark Side of the Mood by Pink Floyd are mentioned. So, and, you know, TV shows are mentioned in more of a meta type of way. It's this very unique, specific, you know, world-specific um, uh, series. It was a joy to watch. It was absolutely a joy to watch, and there's a lot of things that they got right that they improved on. I much preferred this to the Jim Carrey movie, and I love Jim Carrey's work in Lemony Snicket, but in the film version of it, they toned down a lot of the darkness and allowed Carrey to play up the buffoonery and the campness of it. And some of it worked, some of it didn't. And so starting off the cast, the lead focus of it all is Neil Patrick Harris. He knocks it out of the park. He is incredible. Beautiful work. And especially with the first couple of episodes, it's a bit unfair because our direct comparison is always going to be Carrey. So when we see... His Count Olaf, we automatically connect it to that. And the big thing about the series of unfortunate events is because Count Olaf is a bad actor, the treat, and I use treat in inverted commas, is every book you see Count Olaf in new disguises. And so we, you get to see this evolution, this cavalcade of horrible performances that he plays. And that was one of the highlights of the film, is seeing Jim Carrey playing Stefano, the Italian assistant uh, to Montgomery Montgomery, to see um, Captain Sham, Captain Sham and... Uh, Stefano by Jim Carrey are two particularly hilarious uh, uh, characterizations, which I love. So I couldn't help but compare Neil Patrick Harris's versions of Stefano, and they were completely different. Even his Captain Sham, you know, reeked of a bit of uh, Sean Connery, which was particularly. <laughs> did, actually, yeah. 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 Um, so, but yeah, Neil Patrick Harris knocked out of the park. It wasn't until we got to the miserable mill, the, the, the fourth story when you could really start, okay, let's push away any of the Jim Carrey comparisons and see, you know, his interpretations come out because there was nothing to compare it to. And that was great, especially in the, the, the fourth, you know, part of the series where he, you know, he disguises himself as a woman and he does that freakingly well. It was freaky how good he did the, uh, the, the female, uh, assistant, which was great. Yeah, yeah. I've always been not a massive fan of Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, he did that one show in the 90s, which I've never seen. Uh, then there was How I Met Your Mother, which I don't really like at all. Uh, and then he's just done a bunch of film work. So this was really the first time in which I saw him in something and liked his performance. I like him as a person, and a lot of the stuff he does as himself I am a fan of, but this was the first time where he has portrayed a character on screen, and I really liked it. And um, he is definitely the definitive Count Olaf, I would say, for me anyway. Yeah, look, it's really um, 
it's a great story. It's a great success story with Neil Patrick Harris. You know, he got his big break on television on a show called Doogie Howser, MD. That's it, yeah. A yeah. genius, and I grew up watching him on that. And then he left and he went off the, the radar. And what he did, he went back and worked on his craft and he went and became a huge Broadway star, massive Broadway star back in the late 90s, early noughties. And so, and then he got his next big break being cast as the ultra misogynistic, you know, male chauvinist, heterosexual character and Barney in um, How I Met Your Mother, which I never watched. And I, uh, but I was for, uh, not forced. I was going to like <laughs> part of uh, part of a relationship is you share TV shows and stuff like that. And I actually became quite addicted, and I became quite a fan of all nine seasons of How I Met Your Mother. And oh, wow. When he starts off, he's the most gay, heterosexual character you ever see, but he evolved this character into be something more. And he's a very talented actor, very committed, he's, you know, and beautiful singer as well, and you get to hear him sing in the show. He's really taken it upon himself to um, make this role his own, and he's done incredibly well. But the star of the show for me, who's absolutely outstanding, Patrick Warburton is outstanding as mm. the storyteller. The one thing that really disappointed me about the film was that Lemony Snicket was just this soft-spoken, charming, beautiful uh, Jude Law character in The Shadows. And it never really fit with the series. But what they've done with uh, the Netflix series is um, you see... Lemony Snicket up front. It's Patrick Warburton. If you're not sure of him, he was in Seinfeld. He was in Rules of Engagement. He was uh, the tick. Wonderful in the Aussie film The Dish. Beautiful, dry, laconic actor who has this sort of like, you know, deadpan delivery. And he plays Lemony Snicket as kind of like this investigator, kind of film noir style. He's in every single episode, pretty much every single scene he is there narrating and telling these, you know, horrible facts about the Baudelaire's and he's just outstanding. He's you know, different costumes depending on the location and his story is going through as well. Like he's being chased by these mysterious bad people and he's going from location to location. And for me, he's just the revelation of the show. He's, he's always been a very talented actor and some of the work that he has done hasn't been up to standard. Like his work on rules of engagement, you could just see he was paying the bills, but this is something where he really shines. You can see his comedy. You can see his, you know, subtlety as an actor, and you can see the beautiful range that he brings to a quite dry, deceptively one-dimensional character. There's a lot of lot of diversity and range within him. So I love Patrick Warburton in this, and I think he, uh, he really holds the show together. Oh, yeah, look, easily. I always say that a series of unfortunate events kind of shaped my style of comedy, you know, what I do with stand-up and what I enjoy. Uh, it set me up to really like the characters of Deadpool, for example, with that fourth wall-breaking super meta, and um, he brings all that across. He is probably the best part about this show. Uh, I agree with you there. Just just some of the stuff, he definitely gets most of of the best lines in the entire show. He's incredible. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Wonderful performance. Um, and, yeah, I'll just skip through, like, the, the, the three kids playing the Baudelaire's are wonderful. Um, Pretty good. Sonny wasn't annoying, which was my major, major problem with the film. I didn't like Sonny at all. Really overused as just kind of like a cheap plot device. But they really, really pulled it off in this one. I really, really liked the uh, the scripting for all of them as well. Again, it was kind of deadpan near the beginning, and they all 
pulled it off. It was good. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a definite melancholy to the Baudelaire kids, but there's a determination behind it. There's an undercurrent of just this grim despair, but they've got this undercurrent of hope and happiness and 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 joy about reading and inventing and biting. Um, some of the <laughs> some of the sunny CGI baby stuff was a bit off, but seeing Sunny in full flight just you know, ripping into biting all the wood. It was hilarious to see. There's some lovely work in there. The the band of Count Olaf's, you know, evil theatre troupe are great, wonderful, wonderful, evil, horrible characters, which is really, really cool. And then you've got the, the supporting actors. They've got some great stuff in there. Like uh, Don Johnson is in the most recent episodes with Reese Darby as a uh, Sir. He does very... Reese Darby was great, yeah. Yeah, well, they both were. They were both really good. Yeah, Reese Darby is played, he play, plays himself all the time, and he was really beautiful <laughs> with um with uh, Don Johnson. Alfred Wooder was wonderful as Anne Josephine and really created a new version of Anne Josephine that stepped away from the Meryl Streep version we remembered. Oh, definitely, yeah. Like, I mean, like after seeing her from Luke Cage and then going directly into this. She's got some crazy range to be able to pull that off. And she does it in a really grounded way as well. She's not, she doesn't have that flair of theatricality or over the top. You can see Wooda comes from a very grounded level of performance. She's a really, you know, method actress. And she plays that with Anne Josephine. She, there's no flourish of the theatricality like um, uh, Meryl Streep has or anything. It's a really grounded, beautiful, fascinating joy to see. She played it so straight, so down the line. And I just, uh, I couldn't love Alfred Wooder more than I did in that. I'm going, I've never seen an over-the-top grounded, you know, fourth-wall performance. You know, you everyone praises, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch for his commitment to character, but that's just that type of over-the-top theatricality in season four. Bleh. You know, some of Marlon Brando's over-the-top theatricality when he was heralded as the greatest fourth-wall actor ever. No, no, no. Look at Alfre Wooder in this, and that shows you can do over-the-top in a completely convincing fourth-wall performance. Mm, really, really good. And then you've also got a K. Todd Freeman as Arthur Poe, who... Was okay. I would personally say my least favourite performance in the show, but seen as pretty much every performance in the show was great, that's not really a bad thing. <laughs> the annoyance I felt for him was just more the, not of the performance, but more of the character. And that's why, you know, I praise his performance because he played it so well that he, because he was so annoying. <laughs> yeah. But there's only so much you can stand like eight episodes of nobody believing the children and everyone taking advantage of the children. And they're going, we get it. Okay, I get it. I get it. I just need a break. Yeah. And then you build up resistance about 12 hours. You have a break for 12 hours. Then you go back into it. Wears it down after watching two episodes. It's a repetitive nature of watching this series. Yeah, so that's a point I wanted to bring up. Do you think it works as a seasonal program? Because one point... I read in a review somewhere was that this could work in like a Netflix original movie format. So each book is a movie, maybe one every two months, and that could have worked better throughout the entire series. Whereas we are getting these eight episodes all at the same time. And as we've said, they aren't the easiest to binge. They are quite hard to sit through one after the other in terms of uh, arcs. Do you think it worked in the format that we got it? Um, I don't know if I could cope with, you know, a movie every couple of months. And just, it's a case of 
because just the tone of the books are captured perfectly, either way, you, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a struggle whether you're watching it eight episodes straight to get four books out. You're still going to have to go through the enduring nature of the fact that they're incredibly repetitive. It doesn't really deviate from the formula. You get the exact same structure, the exact, you know, just they just change the location, but it's the same stuff over and over again. Mm. So I'm fine with it as a series, and it's good to have it all there, but you watch it occasionally. So, like, oh yeah, I did the same thing you. I watched each book, so, you know, two episodes a, a night, which was very, very good. Yeah. Uh, one thing, as a fan of the books, I really liked about the series was there were still surprises. They added in a couple of new characters, a couple of new twists. The final book in particular, The Miserable Mill, episode 7 and 8, I won't spoil too much, but the setup for that is very, very different to what we got in the book. And it kind of it kind of broke the repetitive nature just a little bit, which I really liked. Yeah, and then this whole thing of what was lat, you know, what we didn't get to see in the movies because it was, you know, they only made the one is we're seeing more of the the mystery of what happened to the Baudelaire's parents, the secret organization they're a part of. So that is actually that arc is I'm quite enjoying. So that type of stuff is going to power me through, and they have time in a series to develop that a bit more. Oh, yeah, we're finding out little bits here, which is really good. Yes, and uh, in closing, the final shot, the final setup. Season 2 I really, really liked because, as I said, the next batch of books are my personal favourite. And the fifth one, the Ostia Academy, is my favourite out of all of them. The setup was just beautifully done. Really, really, really well made. And uh, I am looking forward to, uh, to Series 2. I am um, very thankful that we are getting any more than eight episodes a year. But... I think it works really well. Actually, I'm not sure if we are getting it every year because I read somewhere that the showrunners are hoping to get it out sooner rather than later. So maybe November, December, we'll be getting it. The kids are going to be growing very, very soon and, you know, they're going to have to get a new baby because <laughs> babies don't stay that size for, for, you know, for two or three seasons. So it's going to be very, yeah, they're going to have to get a wriggle on because uh, the actor's playing a, Klaus and Viola, they're going to be growing up very, very soon. Voices are going to be cracking, and uh, they're going to go through the same problems that the Harry Potter films went through. Yes. I'm actually reading it right here. They do plan to start shooting in a few months, and season two is actually going to be ten episodes long. It's going to focus on five books rather than the four, and then series three will do the final four books. Right, and the, and the, and these five books are your favourite, so season two should be your your favourite. They are indeed, yeah. I'm really excited. Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to it, and I'm, uh, I'll, I'm, I'm glad I've got a break now so I can go back and watch something that makes me happy, but it was beautifully <laughs> written, sharp writing, so great comedy stuff in there, and balances the over-the-top and the grim really, really well. Uh, the comedy was easily my favourite part of it. Um, as I said, this style of comedy is my personal favourite. What do you give this out of um, Seven Samurai? I'm probably going to give it a very strong five and a half out of Seven Samurai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give it. A, I'll give it a solid. Um, yeah, five, five, five Samurai uh, out of Seven Samurai it was really solid. Beautiful. The the production design and the costumes and. Just the, the style of it, they created a very unique style that was unique to itself, but loaned itself to the to the books and also to the to the original film. And also, the theme tune is amazing, and don't <laughs> don't 
skip it because it's something new every episode, which I really liked. Yeah, and you get to hear, yeah, of course, Neil Patrick Harris gets to sing, which is beautiful. Um, So, yes, that's all we have time for uh, this time with Nerd Out. Uh, So next week we'll have um, uh, Mr. David Innes on and what we'll be discussing, Mr. Mr. Sandra Felcher, what will be our main topic? It will be returning to last week's topic, which is Sherlock. Do we need season five? It is the talk of the town at the moment. Everyone's kind of going, oh, are we going to get another season? For some reason, people think season four isn't done yet because of a line in the second episode which said, people always expect three, but there's always more. And some people think that means we're going to be getting a secret fourth episode of season four. Um, But yes, we will be discussing whether or not we need Sherlock season five. And I'm certain that that's going to be a very interesting uh, discussion with a lot of opinions flying all over the room. Definitely. That'll be coming out next week. So until then, um, let us know what you think. Send us, um, send us your thoughts on uh, feedback.nerdout at gmail.com or on our Facebook page. Our links are in the description. Plus, if you uh, have anything you want us to review or look at, um, uh, send us the title over and we'll definitely give it a shot. Join the conversation. That's what I say. Um, also, you can listen to us on iTunes and feel free to leave a review there. We need more than just um, Sandra and my glowing review of ourselves. It would really help us out just to help boost us up within the the rather jam-packed world of uh, podcasts there on iTunes. Indeed, yes. Uh, before we leave, I have one quick thing to plug. I've got a new project starting up this Thursday on a little radio station, Sunbury Radio, the old stomping ground. I've been there for a couple years. I'm returning with a new show, This Week in Music, which is brand new music from mainly Australia, but also around the world. It's, it's about 80% Australian music, and that's starting this Thursday, Thursday 2nd of February. Definitely check it out. Let's check it out, Sandra. There's great stuff on the radio. It's good to have him back on the legitimate airways as opposed to the digital ones. Uh, Definitely check that out. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Keep in touch. Join the conversation. And until we see each other or listen to each other next time, don't forget to nerd out. You were just listening to Nerd Out, Episode 9, featuring Rob Lloyd and Sandra Felcher. This has been an improbable podcast production. Feel free to contact us at feedback.nerdout at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook for any review recommendations or feedback. The links are in the description. The views expressed are those of the speaker and don't necessarily reflect those of the other speakers or the network. The opening and closing music of the show is Denial by Dark Shadows. No copyright infringement was intended. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. The phone's ringing. Okay, well then this part can be cut out because it's just awkward and shit. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be in the bloopers. This It'll be in the bloopers. Of course they fucking will. Fuck you, bloopers. Um... When you think new Australian music from January, what songs come to mind? Is it Seth Century with Play It Safe? Money is everything, so let it bring you merriment. Become obsessed with it and make the same mistakes your parents did. Or heaps good friends with their new one, Let's Hug Longer. I'm Sandra Felcher, and you can join me every Thursday evening as we take a journey through all the latest songs that came out this week. This Week in Music, Thursdays from 6 on 99.3 FM Sunbury Radio.